Welcome to Quarantine Creatives. I'm Heath Rosala. Number 50. Episode 50. I can't believe I'm here. This is wild, you guys. I started this show back in May. And I don't know what it was. There was something at that time where I felt very optimistic that the end of coronavirus was right around the corner, that we were going to go back to our normal lives. And I set a goal for myself of doing 10 episodes of this show. That would have gone for five weeks, would have taken us into mid-June. And I figured by July 4th, at the absolute latest, things would be pretty much back to normal. Things would be reopened. And, you know, maybe there would be a spike again in the fall or the winter, but it would have been a long ways away. And we would have spent most of the summer, you know, relatively normal. Of course, that's not what happened. Things are still crazy. The virus is raging out of control. We're now over 231,000 deaths in the United States. I remember hitting like 50 or 60,000 and just being blown away. And we are, what, four times that now with no end in sight. So... Yeah, in some ways, I'm excited that we've gotten to 50 episodes here, and uh, in some ways, it's sad that (laughs) we're still talking about the quarantine, we're still talking about COVID, we're still feeling the economic effects of it, and it feels like it might be years before we're all really on the other side of this. Thank you to everybody who has tuned in, whether this is the first show of mine that you've listened to, or if you've been here for all 50, or somewhere in between. Thank you. I really appreciate it. I want to tell you, I launched a new project as well over the weekend, this past weekend. It is a newsletter that is a companion to the show. So if you miss any episodes, you will get a weekly summary every Sunday morning in your inbox that will tell you some of the highlights of the show, kind of the Cliff Notes version, you know, some of the standout quotes and things like that. But it also is useful if you listen to the entire episode because I'm going to include a lot of bonus content in this newsletter as well. So articles that I came across, videos, anything that's interesting, you know, in researching these guests and figuring out these shows, I'm going to include that in there as well. If you go to my website, which is heathrasella.com, just my name, H-E-A-T-H-R-A-C-E-L-A.com, you'll see a sign-up link right there on the homepage. Just enter your email. It is free to subscribe, but there is also a paid option This is the only way that I take money. The podcast, obviously, is completely for free on all your podcast platforms. The newsletter is available for free. It's kind of like NPR or PBS. If you have extra money and you want to contribute, that's awesome. But certainly feel free to enjoy the content for free as well. And one last thing before we get to today's show. I am talking to you. I'm actually recording this on Sunday night, November 1st. It's going to be uploaded for November 2nd. So this is the last show that I'm doing before the election. I have been very nervous. I am suddenly having flashbacks to, you know, feelings of 2016 and just realizing how quickly that night went south and how quickly our country went south in the four years after that. I really hope that we're not headed to another four years of Donald Trump as president But I also fear for what happens if Joe Biden wins, because there are going to be a lot of angry people out there, people that disproportionately 
seem to have weapons and uh, they're being encouraged by their leader. So we're going to be coming into a rough patch here. I hope everybody is ready for that. But most importantly, if you're hearing this before Tuesday, I hope you get out and vote. Make sure you do it safely. Bring a mask, whatever makes you feel comfortable and safe to do it. Lines may be long, depending on where you live. Stay in line. Get counted. It's very, very, very important. And I'll talk to you on Thursday, and we'll see where we're at then. Michael Ian Black is my guest today. He's a comedian. He's an actor. I first remember him from the I Love the uh, series on VH1. I love the 70s. I love the 80s. I love the 90s. Uh, He was one of the feature panelists on that show. He was in Wet Hot American Summer, both the original movie and the prequel series on Netflix, Reno 911. He's he's just done a lot, and uh, he's he's really funny. I've always just sort of really keyed into his very kind of sarcastic, uh, very dry sense of humor. We're not here, though, to talk movies or comedy today. We're actually here to talk about Michael's new book. It's called A Better Man, A Mostly Serious Letter to My Son. And it's a really interesting conversation that he has in this book. His son is going off to college, and he essentially is using this book to write him a letter about what it means to be a man and sort of how that definition is in the process of being rewritten right now. And he takes a very progressive point of view of this. This isn't, you know, oh, we should be men and we should stand up and, you know, defend our kingdom. This is here's ways to be more sensitive. Here's ways to be more caring. Here's ways to not mansplain and, you know, really dives into what it takes to be a good man. I guess that's the key, being a good man or a better man, as he says. You know, I think Michael hits on something too, which is this idea that there have been a lot of conversations for girls now. We've been looking for, you know, since really the second wave of feminism in the 60s and 70s, at what does it mean to be a successful girl? What does it mean to be an assertive girl? What does it mean to navigate the world as a young woman? But that our concept of masculinity is still very much set in, you know, a kind of 1950s Ward Cleaver or, you know, Don Draper view of it. The perfect man that gets presented to a lot of young boys, and I felt this way too, not necessarily from my parents, but just sort of from culture at large, is this kind of tough John Wayne, you know, never crying, never showing emotion. Michael dives into all of that. And what's really interesting, too, to me is that he does it from a comedic point of view. So I really enjoyed reading his book. And this conversation goes really deep and goes to a lot of different places. And we touch on a lot of things. But uh, it's a it's a necessary conversation that I hope we can all start having more with each other as a society and especially with our young boys. I have a four-year-old son. He will be there before I know it. And I think Michael helped me think through what parenting a boy is going to look like in just a couple of years here. So the book is A Better Man. Here it is, my conversation with Michael Ian Black. Uh, so I want to start by just asking you about, you know, this uh, this quarantine period. How have the last, you know, seven months or so been for you? Uh, well, with the caveat that they've been weird for everybody, my quarantine has been fine. It's been a lot of napping, a lot of 
piano playing uh-huh. and a lot of Stacy's pita chip eating. <laughs> have you uh, have you found a diet that works for you during this time? Like, I feel like every day is a cheat yeah. day for me. I'm just eating like ice cream and all the terrible yeah, that, stuff. Yeah, that's my diet. <laughs> that's the one I found and that's the one I'm sticking with. That's what's working. Well, I'm excited to dive into this book with you. Um, I, I really enjoyed reading it. And, you know, one of the things that I was just sort of thinking about as I as I started looking at it was like, if this were a book by like a, you know, a, a gender studies professor or something like that, I probably wouldn't read it, even though the subject matter really appeals to me. But there's something about just sort of knowing who you are and having it come from a comedic point of view that I really appreciated and that sort of instantly drew me to it. And it just, it made me think sort of about just comedians in general and sort of accessibility and, and sort of, you know, how, how comedy can be subversive like that, I guess, and, you know, draw you in and get you to think about serious thoughts. Well, thank you. That's nice of you to say. Um, part of the reason I was reluctant to write it was because I'm not an expert in uh-huh. this stuff. I'm not a gender theorist. I'm not a historian. I don't even have a college degree, but, my editor was sort of like, well, why not you? Meaning like, why not a lay person writing about this stuff? And the fact that you might have a more accessible take on it could be useful. And I thought that was a pretty good point. And it was sort of hard to make an excuse as to why I couldn't do it after she said that. Yeah. And and you did your homework too. I mean, that was the impressive thing was that, you know, you were citing lots of books throughout and, you know, it felt like you had, had done the research. I wonder just Oh no, like... I just made, I made that stuff up. <laughs> oh, did you? Okay. Just, yeah, I need a I good quote here. I figured nobody's going to check. Right. Oh, well, I didn't. I believed you. <laughs> I, I've never heard of half the people in there, but... <laughs> But like diving into that, just like how do you even begin to, you know, this is a new area of of focus for you. Like how do you pick out what are the, you know, 10 books you're going to read that are going to give you the perspective on this? I literally just started Googling. Like I started casting such a wide net because I really didn't know where to start. I mean, I started by reading like Susan Faludi and random like articles and asking for recommendations And then gradually, you know, I accumulated a fairly big stack of books, um, a lot of which ended up being really helpful. Do you feel like you're at the point now where you have some expertise in this subject area or it's something you want to... No, No, I'm not an expert in anything. (laughs) Um, No, I mean, there's, there's so many people out there who have done a lot of remarkable work in this area and, and I don't hold a candle to them. Yeah. But I do think what I have is an ability to speak generally to people and to sort of point in directions that they might not otherwise know where to go. Yeah. I I was really interested, too, in just sort of, you know, your childhood and sort of how that may have shaped some of your own perceptions of, you know, what it means to be a man. Although I also don't know that your specifics necessarily were were any more relevant than, you know, what was happening in society at large. But, you know, you talk about a father that had trouble saying, I love you to you, and then passed away very unexpectedly when he was very young. And, you know, you were just like an early teenager. Um, Your mother had divorced him prior to that and came out as a lesbian and sort of her and her partner were very critical of men, you know, in your presence for a long time and just sort of, you know, deriding 
especially kind of male stereotypes and and chauvinists and and that sort of thing. But I wonder sort of like, as you look back on it, the the picture of sort of the perfect man that comes to mind for you that was, you know, imprinted in your brain. Like if you could look back at teenage Michael, who did who did you think was a was a perfect man? Alan Alda, obviously. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, who doesn't think Alan Alda is a perfect man? <laughs> that's, that seemed to be the only guy that my mom liked was yeah. Alan Alda and Ron Darling of the Mets, although she just thought he was cute. Yeah. I don't think she had any, any idea of what he was like personality-wise, but she thought he was cute. Yeah. So Ron Darling uh, physically, and uh-huh. look, his last name is Darling. You're not going to go wrong there. And then Alan Alda in every other way. Yeah. Well, you talk about that, too, of sort of that, like— that shift in in sort of the late sixties, early seventies to to Alan Alda and and Dustin Hoffman and you know mm-hmm. people like that going sort of away from that you know John Wayne image of a perfect man. Like, why do you think people moved in that direction and then and then it swung back? You know, with Ronald Reagan and sort of you know the eighties. Well, I don't know that people in general did, but sort of where I was, uh, at least in my household, and I think among a certain kind of person there was a gravitational pull towards guys who didn't fit the traditional stereotype guys who were a little bit more emotive a little bit more offbeat guys who seemed to embody a certain set of progressive ideals whether they did or didn't i don't know yeah i think it reflected things that were going on in the culture the same way that like James Dean and Marlon Brando reflected what was going on in their culture. And then I don't think it's a coincidence that in the 80s, when Ronald Reagan was ascendant, the movie stars that came back into vogue were the really kind of macho, um, strong and silent types like Sylvester Stallone or Arnold Schwarzenegger or even Bruce Willis, guys that were much more about machismo and much less about uh, thinking and right. caring right. and and emoting. Yeah, a lot of grunts during that era. A lot, a lot of grunts, a lot of guns. <laughs> um, I, I, that makes me think just sort of about, you know, the era we're in today, too, and sort of, you know, Donald Trump sort of projecting that, you know, I, I feel like his sort of the version of himself that was formed in, in you know, the early 80s is just sort of who he's been his whole life of, you know, this everything's about gold and big hair and, you know, whatever. But like I'm, I'm thinking about you know that that thing he tweeted the other day of like the side by side video of or top to, top to bottom video I guess of him like mm-hmm. you know going over his supporters with the chopper and meanwhile you know here's Joe Biden going downstairs like I don't even know what the message was supposed to be there but just like I wonder just sort of the the, the Reagan era hangover that we're sort of still dealing with today. Well, there's no question that this sort of cartoonish masculinity is a big part of Trump, and I assume a big part of his popularity, this idea of American puffery. And what's interesting about it, I think, is, you know, Trump machismo is so obviously hollow. Right. So what does that say about the country writ large? I mean, if if Reagan-esque machismo was about a declaration of America's strength in the world, what is Trump's machismo about? It seems to be about exactly what you just described, big hair and gold facade right. and not much else. Yeah. So that's kind of alarming. You know, the people that we 
choose to elevate into icons. And I think it's hard to argue that Trump isn't an icon at this point for good or for bad. They're reflecting something about how we see ourselves in the world. And there's such fragility around Trump. You know, it's all masqueraded, of course, but it's I think it's so obvious to anybody with a critical eye that his masculinity is a is a is a masculinity of terror and fragility. Right. So what does that say about us as a country? I don't think it's very good. Yeah, no, I agree. And, and you know, there is just sort of he has that line during rallies where, you know, like he, he talks about, you know, just kind of an unidentified aide always referring to him as sir, you know, whatever the mm-hmm. story is. It's just, you know, no, sir, we can't have the missile, sir. And, you know, I said to him, listen, you got to get him. Is all right, sir. You know, it's it's so right. Strange. I, I wonder too, though. Just there, there's some iconography with with Biden too, with you know the aviator specs, and you know even the mask has sort of become a piece of that. It's become his sort of superhero cape. Like mm. th- th- there is a need on both sides, and and Biden certainly will put out sensitive videos and stuff too. You see those of him, you know, hugging grieving families and stuff. But mm-hmm. he also sort of embraces that, you know, almost cartoonish masculinity in some ways. Yeah, I mean, I think he is trying to project strength the way every presidential candidate tries to do. Yeah. It's, it, it seems to be a hallmark of running for president that you have to somehow be perceived as strong. And, you know, maybe that's not a bad thing. I'm trying to think of the last candidate who didn't like wear strength on his sleeve or her sleeve. And the, the only person that comes to mind is Jimmy Carter, yeah. who, at least he was like the commander of a nuclear submarine or whatever it was he did on a nuclear submarine. So he had that in his back pocket. <laughs> but I think I – I don't think the projection of strength in and of itself is a bad thing. Yeah. And I think Joe Biden has done a good job of contrasting those moments of – toughness or, or want to be toughness with with moments of sincerity and moments of sensitivity and moments of empathy. Obama did a really good job with that, too. Clinton yeah. did a really good job with that. George W. Bush did a good job with that. I mean, I think he was a terrible president, but, you know, his whole message was compassionate conservatism, whatever that means. Right. But Trump really only has that one, you know, he that one side of his coin. He's a Mobius strip. He doesn't have that component that every other sane human being seems to have, which is at least an understanding of empathy, at least the ability to fake it. He doesn't seem to have that. And rather than be repelled by that, a certain amount of the population seems to be drawn to it. And I I find that really curious and alarming. Right. Well, I I agree with you. And, you know, some of the things that stood out in your book, too, that sort of uh, tie into that, I guess, are, you know, these issues around pride and, you know, uh, sort of as a masculine trait that, you know, I I never want to have my pride offended and, and the idea of winners versus losers and that that's a zero sum game. And it also sort of made me think about just sort of the mask debate that's going on right now of like, you know, the people that don't want to wear masks. It feels like a large part of it is just is projecting masculinity. And, you know, I'm not afraid of a little invisible virus. That's not going to kill me. Like, it's just it doesn't make sense to me. I don't know. It doesn't make sense. I mean, if you frame it in terms of 
the way you just did as a, as a kind of show of masculine strength, it makes more sense because if your entire sense of self is wrapped up in strengths and in vulnerability, then when you exceed to health concerns, um, when you say, I care more about my life and the life of people I love than showing strength, that's in a way, in a weird way, it's admitting weakness. It's showing mm-hmm. a kind of vulnerability. It's absurd. Yeah, It's utterly absurd. And yet the people who seem to be most resistant to wearing masks are men, in particular, a certain kind of man. Yeah, The fact that it's become so politicized, I shouldn't even say that it became politicized because that sounds like there was blame to go around. The fact that Trump politicized it right. so much uh, feeds perfectly into his narrative of strength and invulnerability. And never mind the fact that people are dying and never mind the fact that people are getting ill and making people they love ill. To show weakness in the face of anything is to admit defeat, is to is to is to sort of proclaim yourself as a loser. Right. And when you frame the world that way as between winners and losers, you know, you, you're left with some pretty stark choices. And this is a bizarre example of that, but it certainly is an example of it. Right. Well, it's interesting, too, that sort of the opposite of that, and you touched on it a little bit there, is empathy. And, and that's something you talk a lot about in the book. And sort of one of the stories that really struck me because I really related to it was sort of the first time that you describe really feeling like a man you know, it, it wasn't uh, graduating from high school or getting married or any of that. It was driving your son home from the hospital after he'd been born, you know, spending two or three days in the hospital and loading into the car and just the terror, that white knuckle drive. Like, I totally related to that. And I was like, oh, yeah, <laughs> like mm-hmm. you suddenly feel very grown up in that moment. But also you talked about sort of your son's uh, sex being revealed in in the birthing room and sort of everybody in the room's perception changing or, you know, all of a sudden there was a, there was a framework for understanding Mm -hmm. who he was going to be. And I guess I just wonder sort of, you know, as, as we talk about empathy versus strength or, you know, can those coexist? Like, uh, I guess just sort of your parenting style and trying to, trying to figure out how to raise a boy to be (laughs) something different than that John Wayne, Ronald Reagan, you know, swinging dick kind of character. Well, first of all, I don't know how good a job I am. I'm doing as a dad, you know, I'm loath to say, look at my parenting as anything other than just ordinary parenting. And I make the same mistakes everybody makes. I do think there's a lot to be said, particularly when kids are young for modeling the kind of behavior that you want them to display. Kids obviously are looking to us as parents as guides and the way we behave is the way they're going to behave to it to a large degree as they get older that modeling from parents gets replaced or certainly supplanted by their peer group and by the culture at large but i think parent modeling never fully i don't think it ever goes away i mean i think i think parents will continue to be touchstones for better or for worse throughout their lives so Empathy, I think, has to be a part of that as a parent. And for dads in particular, I think that means acknowledging their suffering and not poo-pooing it and not saying, oh, you're fine. You're going to be just fine. 
I don't think it, I don't think that's the same thing as coddling, although I think there's a role for coddling too. And incidentally, I think there's a role for saying, you know what, you're fine. Yeah. Like there's a role for all of it. Yeah, I don't think any parent has to be one thing all the time other than trying to set a decent example. Right. Knowing, by the way, that we all fail. Right. There are moments where we all fail at it, moments where we lose our temper, moments where we're unkind, moments where we don't pay enough attention, moments when we're negligent. Like I've done all of that. Right. And we all do. I mean, that's and, and for me, you know, I've got a seven and four year old, so mine are a little younger than yours, but I think you know, you and I come from from similar generations and sort of are, are feeling this this epical shift, you know, under our feet as we're trying to to navigate parenting in this new world. And, you know, I, I do struggle with that sort of the relationship between that, you know, everyone gets a trophy idea and, uh, you know, is it coddling or, you know, is it encouraging? I don't know. Or just the, you know, shut up, you'll be fine. Like, uh, there's probably somewhere in the middle there, but it, I feel like we're all sort of tending more towards the, you know, participation trophy side of that as parents now. Sure. And I don't know that that's always bad. I mean, I don't know that it's always good either, but yeah. I struggle with it. I think everybody struggles with it. I don't think it's necessarily incumbent on us as parents to constantly be saying, you're amazing, you did a great job, I'm so proud of you, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. I think there are moments where that's appropriate when you really feel that way. But I also think the question can be asked of the kid, how do you think you did? Mm. How did it go for you? Um, did you enjoy yourself? You know, I don't, think we ne- I don't think we necessarily need to heap praise on them because kids also have pretty good bullshit detectors. I mean, you know, kids aren't stupid. Right. They know when they did their best. They know when they've accomplished something for real or they just went through the motions. And I don't feel obligated to praise my kids to high heaven um, every time they wipe their own asses. Right. But I but I, and, and, and part of that is because I, you know, I want them to know, like, when I do take the time to tell them how proud I am of them which I do, I want them to believe it. I want them to know that that's true. But, but more than that, I want them to know how to take pride in themselves. Hmm. Yeah. There's a different level of engagement with parenting now too. I think that like, whether it is praising or overpraising, or as you say, just self-reflection, like, I feel like some of those conversations just didn't happen a generation earlier. It was just kind of, you know, let the kids go watch TV. They'll be fine. You know, like, I don't remember engaging with my parents nearly as much as I engage with my own children. Right. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm trying to think. I mean, my thing was more like just wanting to, by the time I was in early teenage years, just get away from yeah my mom, you know, and get away from my house. And, you know, I think that's normal, too. I think as a kid, I engaged a fair amount. Yeah, I, I guess so. I don't feel like, I don't know. And maybe it's this pandemic, too. I mean, we're all just on top of each other here. So that's, yeah. you know, the last couple of months have been very different. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I was I was struck, too, just sort of you talking about your childhood and, you know, being a sensitive kid and, and sort of hating that label. And it was something I related to, too. And sort of, you know, I was I was artistic. I was someone who dressed eclectically. I had a younger sister and like I enjoyed playing with her dolls and things like that, that just, you know, like they they weren't things that were considered normal for a kid. But I feel like a lot of times 
people felt the need to label that in some way. And and the most convenient thing was, oh, well, he must be gay, which I, I wasn't. I was right. straight. But like it was very confusing for me growing up of like everyone seems to think I'm gay. Maybe I am. Maybe, you know, like I, I just I didn't know how to navigate that. And I, I just I, I wonder sort of where you see, you know, gender and sex and orientation and sort of all of those things melding. And, and if our if our perspective on it has become more nuanced over time. I hope it's become more nuanced. Um, I certainly think the larger culture understands that, you know, if you draw, that doesn't mean you're gay. Right. And if you're gay, then that generally that's okay. You know, yeah. I think the larger culture, I think, has gotten that message. It doesn't mean that there's not still a tremendous amount of confusion and anxiety over gender. Uh, particularly, I think, as the idea of sexuality and gender expands, yep. you know, it was a big leap for the previous generation to accept gay people. Right. And I think they have, um, by and large. But then I, I have some sympathy for people who feel bewildered by all the initials that pop up after L and G, right? you know, and B and T and Q and I and A, and then there's a plus sign and you're just like, well, hold on a second. Right. Like, what the hell does all this mean? Right. And how accommodating do I have to be? And for people like me, the answer is obvious, which is entirely accommodating. Like whatever people are, they are. Yeah. And the more opportunities for expression they have, like that's, almost always going to be a good thing. But I understand how you could grow up in a very kind of binary way. You're either a boy or a girl, or you're either straight or you're gay, and feel like that's all the accommodation you want to make to the world. Yeah. And then the idea that sexuality is a spectrum and gender is a spectrum, like, you know, it's, I can understand the confusion and I hope people can have patience with each other as we work through all of this, as we redefine, we didn't redefine, just acknowledge who we are and yeah. who we've always been. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a piece of it. When, when you look back and just sort of realize that, you know, a lot of these, these feelings, you know, wh- whether it's gay or bisexual or transgender, whatever, they've existed for thousands of years and it's just, we've, we've repressed it or, you know, um, cast it out of society. And now we're at a place where it's like, Oh, that's what makes you happy. Cool. doesn't bother me. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And that's, uh, you know, I think that's, it's a hard thing for, for some, and I don't really know why to just embrace that ethos of, of, are you happy? Great. Can I support you in your journey to being happy? Great. And let that be. And I understand that it might be confusing. And I understand that, you know, you may think somebody is one thing one day and then they turn around and say, hey, I think I'm something else. And that forces you to readjust how you think about that person in some ways. I understand that. But I also think there's a basic level of humanity that exists However you choose to live your life, however you choose to express yourself sexually or whatever clothes you choose to wear or however you want to comport yourself like at base, like or it's just humans being humans. And I don't know why 
people have, I don't know why people struggle so much with that essential fact of our humanity. Yeah. I think, I know it, it frightens some people and I wish it didn't. Yeah. And I hope we're at a place where it's, you know, enough people accept it that the people that don't are just sort of have to, <laughs> just have to sort of shut up and go along with it. I don't know. That's. Yeah. I mean, it's not hurting you. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Right. Like I could understand if it was causing you physical pain. Yep. You know, if somebody's transgenderism was, you know, making little paper cuts on your fingers, right. I can understand you'd be like, hey, those paper cuts hurt. But the fact is, it's not. Yeah. It's not hurting you. Right. You know, even the whole bathroom thing, like, do you care? Do you note it? Like, I don't know. It doesn't no, matter. I don't threat? Yeah. You don't look around while you're in a bathroom and say, oh, you know, no. Penis and <laughs> like, and honestly, like, you know, the smell of poop really minimizes any sexy thoughts I'm having about anybody anyway. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you don't want to spend a lot of time in there. No. Um, on on the topic of sexuality, I was really struck with uh, you talk a lot about sort of consent, intimacy, one night stands, just uh, sort of all of that. It, it felt like sort of the talk that a dad should have with a kid and mm -hmm. that often doesn't happen. But I wonder, like for you, is that a, is that a talk you have in person or was it easier to sort of have it behind, you know, the, the cover of a book? Oh, much easier to have it behind the cover of a book. Yeah. Far easier right. than than to have it in person. Um, for both of us. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's funny, like I'm I'm very frank on stage and on the printed page and fairly squeamish in person. Right. And like just one on one. Maybe that's common with performer or maybe not. I don't know. But yeah, I mean my wife and I joke about like I'm like, I'm kind of a prude, like just in my day to day life. Right. And, and yeah, it was easier to have that conversation on the page. That being said, we have me and my wife both have talked to our kids about sex. I mean, both when they were little in terms of just like what it is. Right. And then sort of little conversations as they've aged about our attitudes towards it um and and encouraging them to make good choices sexually yeah how how uncomfortable is that for that i mean is that something like i i just there, there's a part of me that wishes my parents had been more open about it but there's a part of me that just can't imagine what that would have felt like i guess oh yeah it's excruciating for everybody involved yeah <laughs> <laughs> and what happens at the end are you just like all right well let's go get some ice cream or something <laughs> Well, <laughs> the conversations that we've had, the, the kind of dialogues that we've had, haven't been as formal as sit down. I want to talk to you about infor about informed consent, right? And you know about the about the relative merits of one night stands. It it's been more um, casual and and conversations that happen in the moment, you know, yeah. as part of something else, perhaps. Yeah. I, I mean, I guess that's kind of how all parenting is, right? You don't really sit mm -hmm. down and say, now's the time to, to have this discussion. So that makes sense. Um, we were talking earlier, too, about sort of, you know, the need for both Trump and Biden to sort of project this, this masculinity, this toughness. And you talk a lot in the book about sort of how how strength has been equated with military strength. And I mean, going mm -hmm. back thousands of years that, you know, this was sort of an evolutionary uh, thing that we needed, I guess, to survive was the ability to, to fight off perceived enemies. And, you know, I, I, I guess I just think about sort of 
the society we're at now where like, you know, guys like you and me that are less athletic or, you know, we talked about Dustin Hoffman and Alan Alda earlier, like just that there's, there's not the need to be that, you know, we're not cavemen fighting off each other for, you know, a piece of Mastodon or something. Like, do you think we've moved past the point where we need to flex that military muscle so hard? Yes. In terms of just like objectively speaking. Yeah. Sure. Right. Sure. Like, you know, the U.S., let's I mean, just use our country, for example, our technological capabilities like we can and do send drones to do the work that hundreds, if not thousands of troops were required to do before. Yeah. Like from a purely military point of view, objectively speaking, technologically speaking, yes, that is true. From an evolutionary point of view, it's also true. Yeah. Um, we can do just as, as individuals with a gun, what, you know, it would require the sort of biggest guy in the tribe to do beforehand. You know, the gun, for example, really levels the playing field. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I'll leave that for others to decide. But psychologically, we're not past it. I don't know that we ever will be, or at least no time soon. Yeah. I mean, like you said, I mean, it's been thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years of uh, uh, not even evolution, but just sort of sociological conditioning to make the bigger dude in some ways, the more appealing dude. You know, I'm not, I'm not saying we need to overcome that, you know, it, it, it kind of is what it is, but if we, if we know, if we know that that's what it is, and if we can acknowledge that that's what it is, we can maybe move past it a little bit just because it's helpful for us. You know, like it's not even just because guys like you and me want to get laid. Like, you know, like that's part of it too. <laughs> you know, I, I think, I think we'd be loath to deny that. Like yeah. guy, this sort of undersized guys have always been looking for some advantage to attract a mate. And maybe that's playing an awesome guitar solo, or maybe that's being funny. Yeah. Okay. Like that, that has value in the culture. But to equate strength with masculinity, physical strength with masculinity, is, isn't that helpful anymore. Yeah. It's interesting, too, that like your whole discussion around military issues, for some reason it hadn't dawned on me just sort of how crazy it was. I, I don't know why I hadn't thought of this before, but just like, you know, we're, we're all, as a world, try to be a society of, of law and order and, you know, obeying rules and like... The idea that, you know, if if my neighbor borrowed my lawnmower without asking and like I would be justified in going and, you know, burning down his house or something like I would be thrown in jail for that. But for mm-hmm. some reason, if it's another country, another government, it's like, oh, yeah, no, we should go kick their ass. And it's like, well, how come it's OK at, at the very high level, but on a very local level, it's completely frowned upon? <laughs> like either there's laws or there's not. Right. I guess because might always makes right and still does. I mean, yeah. the U.S., I mean, you know, this is veering into a conversation that I'm not smart enough to have, let alone the first conversation we're having. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know but, if I am either, but it's interesting. It is interesting. I mean, the strong generally make the rules. Yeah. Is that right? I don't know. I guess it depends on how you look at it. That, I guess, is true with 
historically speaking, with men versus women, the bigger dude in the tribe versus the smaller dude in the tribe. And we see it with the current president who basically takes the Nixonian approach that if I do it, it must be legal. Right. Those of us who aren't the strongest in the tribe and those of us who might not have the strongest country or have the most power, we recoil at that because we believe perhaps foolishly that rules protect everybody. They're certainly meant to, but maybe that's a naive hope. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. And it's interesting too, just sort of on that, you know, you, you quoted uh, from Talia Lavin, uh, the reporter in, in your book, and actually she has a new book out. I talked to her maybe a week or two ago about, mm. um, which is sort of tracing uh, white supremacy and, and sort of looking at those issues. Mm. And it was interesting because with her, like, I, I expected her book going in to just be sort of racial issues, you know, black on white and, and Black Lives Matter and, and that kind of stuff. But it very quickly veered heavily into anti-Semitism as well. And then sort of gender issues and misogyny and all played a part. And and you touch on that in the book, too, that sort of all of these things, gender, race, class, they're all it's one big mess. It's it's very hard to to distinguish you know, one form of hate from another or one form of privilege from another. Like it, it's it's this big ball of yarn that we need to figure out how to untangle. Yeah. And and I say in the book, like, I don't like I didn't want to talk about race yeah. in these pages. Right. But the fact is, once you start looking, as you just said, at some privilege, it's very hard not to look at all privilege because they're so entwined power structures exist and they tend to privilege a very small number of people yeah and in our case in our country historically that has meant white men yeah and you can you know you can also say white straight men if you wanted and i guess you could say white wealthy straight men because it was certainly landowners right um initially who who had all of the power and privilege. And so that leaves a lot of people out. And you and it's very hard to talk about just the man part of that or just the white part of that or just the wealthy part of that. Yeah. Um and now increasingly harder to talk about just the straight part of that. Right. So yeah, once you start un, um disentangling that one piece of yarn like you said like the whole thing you kind of have to look at the whole thing. I didn't want to. Yeah. I'm believe me, I didn't yeah. want to. Right. Because <laughs> you know, like I wasn't really trying to write, and I don't even I don't think I have, but I wasn't trying to write a controversial book or a book that even necessarily had a strong political bias. Right. But it's very hard to write about any of these topics without writing about all of these topics, at least cursorily, which is kind of what I did. Yeah. Well, and you talk to you dress your son and sort of his privilege around, you know, being being a white child from Connecticut and sort of, you know, what what that has afforded him and sort of being aware of that and being aware even to the point of taking action on that. And I was curious, just sort of, you know, in your experience, like what does action look like to you? Like as you're aware of your privilege, what how do you how do you take action to help others, I guess? There are innumerable ways to take action, and I don't think it's incumbent on anybody to try to save the world. Mm -hmm. In my own case, it means um, – I'm trying to think of how to start it. Like on the very micro level, let's say, seeing people 
And what I mean by that is moving past that initial fleeting impression that we, I think we all have as we categorize people immediately upon meeting them or seeing them or whatever. So you go, uh, you know, I think your eye immediately goes white dude like me yeah. or older black woman, or, you know, I'm just thinking about like, as I move through the grocery store or, you know, Latino mother, whatever it is. If you take the time in, in the book, I call this a habit of consideration. If you take the time to move past that and see the person behind that initial first impression, that first label, I think that's a very, very, very small way of taking action. Mm -hmm. Then there's obviously, there's donating money to causes, there's donating time to causes, there's volunteering for things. There's all the like traditional ways of trying to use your privilege to make the world or your world or somebody's world a little bit better. And I do all of those things. Is it enough? No, but, but it can never be enough. And I try to give myself a break about it. You know, it's hard because I do think it's incumbent on people like me to feel obligated. I don't know what the line is to feel too obligated or the, or where the line is where you feel like, well, I've done enough. I don't know what that is. I think it's personal for everybody. I know like I haven't done enough over the course of my life. Like I, I, I know that. And so I've been trying to like look for little opportunities here and there to do a little bit more. And I do. It's still not enough, but it's something. Yeah. Do you think that I'm just thinking about sort of as you're talking about like trying to see beyond the labels and, and trying to see sort of the inner humanity in everybody. Do you think some of that comes from being an actor? Does, does that does acting give you more empathy? Mm, maybe being a good actor does, but like, I'm not necessarily that good of an actor. You know uh -huh. what I mean? Yeah, it can. There is certainly a lot of observation that goes into creating a good performance, but I don't think it necessarily does. And, and I don't think it's a requirement of the job. Um, and I certainly don't think I have any more empathy than anybody else. If anything, like it's, it's, I might have less on average than other people, not because it's not in me, but because I think I spent a lot of time trying to suppress it mm. and opening up has been, that's a new habit for me and it's, yeah. and it's a new struggle for me. Well, and I, I'm curious about that too, just because, you know, I've, I've felt that tension even in this interview and in watching some of the other press you've done, like around the book of sort of like, do people expect you to be the you know the sardonic sarcastic guy that they've known for 20 years or now you've you've opened up this side of you and you know are, are showing that you have this this empathetic core and like I, I that must be tough for you to just sort of navigate like what what michael are people looking for today yeah and so personally like my own task to myself is not is to try not to care too much yeah and to try to just be honest in the moment and honest in the moment might be making a joke, Like that's, I, you know, that's fine. I think. Sure. Of course. But trying not to shy away from, you know, giving the fuller answer or the deeper answer and not worry too much. If people think I'm a pretentious dick for doing so. <laughs> 
Yeah, it, it must be weird though, just to to open those floodgates. And you know, I, this is this is the first book of yours that I've read. I know you've you've written some others as well, but like, is this the most? Is this the deepest you've gone? I guess is this the most emotional you've been on the page? Um, actually, no. Okay, I would say it's 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 the most serious I've been. But my other two—I mean, I've written a few other books, but the, the two that are closest to this are called "You're Not Doing It Right" and "Navel Gazing," and both of those go pretty deep into emotional territory. But they also have a lot more jokes, and this is the first time that I really stripped away the humor—not entirely. I mean, it is entitled a mostly serious letter to my <laughs> right. son, but because I think that's part of who I am, but I, I definitely wasn't trying to write a funny book and, you know, uniquely maybe for comedians, that's hard yeah. because that sense of humor is our defense and to trust that people will still like us when we're not being funny is really hard for comedians. Yeah. Right. And I don't, and I don't trust it by the way. I still, I definitely don't trust it to, you know, even right now when I'm speaking to you, I don't trust it at all. Wow. Yeah, I, I, I understand that. And I can see, you know, like thinking of, you know, when Jim Carrey does a serious role or, you know, Adam Sandler's done, I'm Robin Williams. Like there is always that moment that it's it's a strange reaction we all have of like, oh, wow, he can do that, too. And it's like, well, yeah, of course, we're all we're all a spectrum of emotion. We're all, you know, but yeah, comedians get kind of labeled in a certain way. Yeah. And I think that's fair. I mean, you, you know, as a comedian, like you present yourself to the world and you say, look at me, I'm, I'm the funny guy. Right. And hopefully people will come along for that ride. And then if you pull the rug out from under them and you go, well, no, now I'm the serious guy. They'll go, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. Yeah. I paid money for you to be the funny guy. <laughs> I didn't, you know, if I wanted De Niro, I'd go see De Niro. Yeah. Right. Um, but, it, but, you know, we're all multifaceted and sometimes, you know, I, you know, comedians aren't always funny. In fact, the comedians that I know, and I know a lot of them, a lot of them tend to be pretty serious people. Yeah. I, w I want to ask you one more thing just about uh, something you wrote in the book that you touched on a couple of times, but I was really curious about, and that's just this job touring the country as a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle and mm -hmm. sort of getting to, to see the U.S. Like, I, I completely relate to that um, feeling of wanting to get out and just see the country and, and being able to do it on somebody else's dime. I, I'm really curious just sort of what that experience was like for you. And even just like, like which turtle were you? Uh, well, I'll take the second part of the question first. Yep. <laughs> I was, usually I was Raphael. Occasionally I would be Michelangelo. Uh -huh. We had two heads and I would, we would swap them every now and again. Gotcha. The first part, the first answer to your question is I was 19 and I'd never seen the country. I'd been places but I'd never seen the entirety of the country. Um, I suspect most Americans will never see the entirety of the country because it's just so big. Right. And that's the thing you learn when you're driving it mile after mile after mile. You realize, oh, this is an enormous, enormous place with incredibly diverse geography and different cultures. But the people tend to be pretty similar from place to place to place. Like, yeah. you know, it's not like you would tr travel from France to Germany and be like, well, the Germans have their own distinct character and the French have their own character. And that's only a few hundred miles apart. You can go a couple thousand miles in America 
and you're still meeting Americans who are recognizably American in every way, shape, and form to you right. as an American. It made me at that time, and this is 1990, feel deeply patriotic for the first time in my life, mm. feeling like this is a big, broad, and, and beautiful country, and the people in it are good people. You know, they're kind, and they're open-hearted, and they will be generous with you. That was new to me. It was new to feel a care for my country and to care for the people in my country. Not that I didn't before, but that I didn't, it wasn't tangible to me. Right. That made it tangible. The last four years, I would say, really have shaken that, really have shaken my faith in the character of the American people, which has been really depressing. Yeah. And kind of startling and 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 it's made me feel like a fool it made me feel pretty foolish for believing in this thing when it felt to me like so many of my fellow americans didn't or at least they didn't believe in the same things that i believed in yeah uh so that's been disheartening yeah no i, I hear you it's funny though like my my faith was weirdly restored <laughs> i think it was this morning maybe it was yesterday but I did that. Have you seen that New York Times quiz of like, is it a Biden or a Trump fridge? Have you done that? No, no, no. I saw it. I saw it online and I, w I was going to click on it. I mean, that's perfect clickbait for me. It, it was. Um. And it, it's it's fun because you literally they had people like send in photos to the New York Times <laughs> or maybe it was like a third party survey company or something, but of of their refrigerator. And you're literally like studying that. I mean, I was looking at them for like a minute or two and just like this guy's got Chobani yogurt. But he drinks right. Dr. Pepper. And then you would have to click, do you think it's Trump or Biden? And then on some of them, they would say, well, why do you think that? Like, click on what it was that was the giveaway for you. Mm -hmm. And you'd be like, oh, it's definitely the Chobani yogurt. That makes it a Biden guy. And they'd be like, nope, it's a Trump voter. <laughs> and then vice versa. And it was just this complete mindfuck. And, and like I did, I don't know, I did 25 of them or something before finally clicking out. And I have no idea how many were in the survey. But it was just this moment of like, oh, we're all we're all the same. Like we're all eating the same kinds of things. <laughs> I don't know. It was a weird moment of clarity for me. That's funny. And, and it suggests to me that you were the victim of some big data mining. Oh, I'm uh, sure. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, you, you were doing somebody's data analytic work for them. Absolutely. But what that reminds me of is thinking about the way it is these subtle differences that end up being much more insidious, I think, than the big ones. And, yeah. and I don't mean that, I don't, I, I'm, I, I'm not trying to sound more profound than I am, but when we think about misogyny or we think about racism or we think about any of the xenophobia, homophobia, whatever it is, you're never going to meet the hood-wearing Klansmen. Right. You know what I mean? You're never going to meet the knuckle-dragging caveman. Yeah. It's these small distinctions and that end up perpetuating these oppressive systems. I'm as guilty of it as anybody else. I know I am. You can't help it. It's like that old joke of the fish swimming in water and the, the one, you know, there's two fish swimming and then they pass another fish and the fish goes, Hey, great. The water's great today. And then the first fish turns to the other and goes, what's water? You know, you're swimming in this thing, Yeah. you know? So the first thing you have to do is be like, Oh shit. Well, I guess we're swimming in water. Yeah. And that's all like my book is trying to do is just be like, dude, like we're surrounded by this. We're in water and all we can do is, you know, take the temperature every now and again.
Yeah. Well, it, it was an important conversation and uh, thank you for, for diving into it and writing it. And, you know, I hope, I hope more people dive into it as well and just, you know, start thinking about these issues and, you know, figuring out those little victories that they can have to, to help move us all forward. Yeah. And that's, you know, again, like I'm not trying to save the world. I'm not even saying I know what I'm talking about, but I do think it is about little victories, you know, just one after the other. And I think taken together, they do move us towards being better people. All right. Michael Ian Black there. It's awesome. I love that guy. I felt just like an instant connection to him. He he speaks a lot of truth in this book, and it's worth checking out. A Better Man, a Mostly Serious Letter to My Son by Michael Ian Black. As I said at the top of the show, I have this new newsletter. Please go sign up for it. Check out HeathRosella.com. There's a sign-up link right there on the homepage. And while we're talking about subscribing to things, make sure you subscribe to this show. I have new episodes every Monday and Thursday, and I will be back with a new show on Thursday. We'll see what happens on Tuesday. Hopefully the world's still here. Hopefully things haven't burned down. <sighs> Go vote, guys. Stay safe. Hang in there. Take care of yourselves. 